water was pouring in, vines were growing in through the windows, animals were getting in there. Um, they knew that if they didn't do something quickly, that it probably would be lost forever. Meanwhile, I'm on the other side of the Atlantic searching for something else, bigger and I guess a meaning in life in a way. And I think it's that perfect storm of us both searching for an answer that brought us together. His name is Hopwood, Hopwood Dupree. In the midlife crisis, you can always take up marathoning or buy a motorcycle, but Hopwood decided to go big, 50,000 square feet big, when he set his sights on a disintegrating manor house in England and a new meaning in life. This wasn't any old disintegrating British manor house. There are more than one. This structure, Hopwood Hall, shared his name. He tells about it in a new memoir, Downton Shabby, One American's Ultimate DIY Adventure, Restoring His Family's English Castle. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Hopwood Dupree was perhaps the unlikeliest of candidates for a job like this. First off, he was an American. Family roots in the Midwest. Obsessed with cameras and cinema, smitten with all things Hollywood and California. By age 18, he was studying film at USC, and as soon as he graduated, decided he'd try to break into the industry. He scraped together his savings and maxed out credit cards to direct and star in a documentary, Rhino Skin, The Making of a Movie Star. So here's what was up with that movie. It's one of those classic stories of somebody trying to break into the movie and TV industry. He had his cameraman follow him around as he tried for a year to get, in his words, just one line of dialogue on a network sitcom. But the real foot in the door turned out to be the documentary itself. His youthful determination making it paid off. It was picked up by film festivals, and he was soon jetting around the world from Hawaii to Australia to Europe, promoting it. At the time of Rhinoskin's release, a critic at Variety magazine wrote that Hopwood's willingness to share his rejections and failures manages to turn humiliation into a badge of honor and a very amusing film. Hopwood would continue to work in L.A. as an actor, director, producer for a couple of decades, his initial optimism and grit paying off well, and he was loving life in Southern California. Having left Holland, Michigan as a teenager and moving out to sunny Los Angeles, it was a dream come true. It was uh, palm trees and beaches and that sort of casual, laid-back attitude. Um, you know, the business day didn't really start until later, 10 o'clock, because when people would start making phone calls, it just, I loved the lifestyle, it, and I embraced it. For many years, I almost felt like I was in this holding pattern, probably from about the time I was... 18 until I was 40. And I was really lucky and really blessed that my family remained somewhat constant. I, it didn't feel like we were aging in a way. Of course, I knew we were, but it, it felt we were very close and nothing rocked the boat too much. Um, and then there was the death of my grandfather, which really shook me up. And then a few years later, it was followed by the death of my father. And both of those, they were the, you know, two very important figures in my life and both had a love of history. And um, I think that changed me. It really, like, you know, so many people who experience death of a loved one, I mean, it, it just, it changes your trajectory in life and your perception of yourself and, and everything. Hopwood got his name from that grandfather who'd passed away, his mother's father. It's a name he did not appreciate in his school days, so he went by Todd, T-O-D, his father's initials. I mean, he loved his grandfather, but that name. When I was a kid, and if somebody started, you know, a 70-, 80-year-old man started talking to me about his family history, I would have called him an old fogey. Would you characterize your grandfather? <laughs> I think if I'd called him an old fogey, I would have been in trouble for a few weeks. <laughs> he, he always had a love of history and genealogy and the stories of the family in, in England and, and also in Hopwood, Pennsylvania, where they had landed when they came over originally from England. And I really didn't have any interest in history or genealogy or anything like that. It kind of almost went the opposite because my grandfather was such a fan of it. And my parents too, my mother 
they loved it. And I think like most kids, you know, you're kind of want to do something different from what your family's doing or your parents are doing. At least I did. Would you sit there and have your eyes glaze over sometimes? <laughs> Definitely, because I really was embarrassed of the name Hopwood. And I really didn't want anything to do with it. It was so different than any other name of any of my friends or any of the other neighborhood kids in Holland, Michigan. Did you go to your parents and say, I want to be called Todd? <laughs> my dad had kind of seen that coming. You know, he it wasn't from his side of the family. I think he thought the name was unique and fun, but also unusual. And so he insisted that they include his initials as, as sort of a out for me, which I, I was so thankful for that. Um, but my mom and my grandfather loved the name Hopwood. And so when I got to kindergarten, it didn't go over well with the other kids. My first day, I remember crying, being made so much fun of. And so then I just said, I'm going with Todd a hundred percent. And uh, that was it. So I didn't really even think of the name again. I kept it hidden from all my friends. Uh, my best friends in high school didn't know Hopwood. They didn't know it. Back to your grandfather and the story of the castle and your family vacations, too. I mean, your whole family seemed to care to talk about the past and you were looking towards the future. <laughs> That's exactly right. I couldn't understand what their fascination was with the past. And any vacation we took will always had some sort of educational component to it, which of course I, as a child, I didn't like. And when a lot of my friends were going to the beach or going camping or doing, you know, going to an amusement park and we were traipsing around the U S looking at uh, presidential homes and libraries and things like that, following the freedom trail on the East coast. And, but it was a really unique upbringing. I'm so thankful for it now. So I'm trying to imagine this grandfather of yours, and I'm wondering if when he talked about the castle, was he speaking from knowledge or hearsay? Was this just kind of the family lore and legend? This was passed down for generations about this Hopwood castle to him, even as a boy. Um, so he knew about it, but he there wasn't much information out there. You know, it was this is before the internet. This is before, you know, you really had to do digging and, and there wasn't a lot there. A lot of it did feel like legend, family lore. It felt very much like stories or bedtime stories. It didn't feel rooted in believability for me as a child. Yeah, so if you're an American in those days and you're hearing about palaces and castles, you may have heard about Windsor, you may have heard about Buckingham Palace, but nobody's going to say anything about there's a real Hopwood Hall. Yes, yeah, and it didn't seem real, and I, I always just thought if it did exist, it would have been gone hundreds of years ago. I didn't think it would still be there. It was, and still is, having mostly survived a 600-year history. We're talking about a two-story stone and red brick edifice situated just outside of Manchester, England, with battlements on the roof, 60 rooms, Jacobean lattice windows by the dozen, with their diamond-shaped panes of glass glistening like jewels. Oh, there's more. Elaborate interior paneling of oak with ornate plaster moldings on the ceilings, about 30 chimneys, Vestiges of a kitchen garden, an Italian garden and fountain, a corn mill, an ice house, a moat, scattered woods on the periphery. You get the idea of its former splendor. Recent years saw the addition of a razor wire security fence surrounding the whole to ward off vandals. This building started as a typical medieval manor house where the lord of the manor would sit on a raised dais. His servants would sit lower down. There probably would have been a fire in the middle of the room with the smoke exiting through the ceiling. So that was the basic one back in the 1400s. That was improved by adding to it in every direction and also adding a floor to give an extra room above the main hall. That's Jeff Wellens, a local historian of Hopwood Hall. He's very quick to put the place into perspective for us Americans, such as here when he was describing for me the ornate oak carvings which had recently been dated through tree rings. And they can definitely say that tree was cut down in 1426. By the way, how old is America? Can you just remind me? <laughs> 
At the zenith of its existence, Hopwood Hall was a bustling institution, employing a village for all its operations, from maintaining the physical plant to keeping its occupants fed and clothed. Here's Bob Wall with a story that demonstrates how a manor house could almost be an entire economy unto itself. Bob Wall is the modern caretaker for the hall and has years of experience as a historical and heritage building specialist. Four o'clock one morning, little boy goes into Lady Hotwood's bedroom, shakes the fire up, relights the fire, so when Mrs. Hotwood wakes up at half past seven that the room will be warm, so he tidies up and leaves the room. Three hours later, her lady's maid comes in. Good morning, Mrs. Hotwood. What would you like for breakfast? And she said, I'll slice of toast. Two years prior to that, her woodsman had chopped the tree down, given it to the charcoal maker, who made it into charcoal, to give it to the blacksmith who made the plough, to go behind the horse that was in the stable, so he had to go to the stable man. And then there was a leather man that made the leather and a timber man to make the timber of the plough, to plough the field, to sow the wheat. The farmer then tended the wheat for the the nine months it was in the ground, cut the wheat with a a scythe, because again, nothing mechanical, took it to the the water mill that they had on site to grind into flour, to give to the baker that they had on site to bake it, who then gave it to the cook to slice it, toast it, hand it to the lady's maid, who would then take it to Mrs. Hotwood, who then said, oh, that's very nice, but I wanted butter on it. So we've got the same, we've got the cows, we've got the milk, We've got the milkmaid, we've got... And then, before you know it, for a simple slice of toast, there's there's about 15 to 20 people. And they might all be individuals to you and I, but they all had families, and they all had wives, and they all had children. So, on-site, because we've talked about blacksmiths, we've talked about leather workers, we've talked about stables, we've talked about horses, stable boys, milkmaids. And then she turns around and says, that's very nice, but I wanted honey. So, I want to start expanding on it just for one slice of toast for the lady of the house. You've got 30 people. And they had to light the fires first, So, and she had her own coal mines on site. And if she wanted a soft drink, she had an ice house on site. And that was just for one simple slice of toast. You know, so you imagine if it was a, a large meal. So when you look at it like that, you think of how many people have walked the same corridors that I've been very fortunate to walk, and the people that they've touched. And Downton Abbey gives this kind of um, air of, oh, everything's honky-dory in the big house. The majority of the people and the staff that worked in a big house were unpaid. You would have heard people say, oh, my daughter works at the big house. Oh, very good, yes, she works 18 hours a day, six and a half days a week. Doesn't get paid, but she's got a roof over her head and she gets four meals a day and a uniform. And it's only when, you know, the the higher echelons like your under-butler and your butler die off that everyone moves up, you know, so it's the original dead man's shoes. But the hall no longer had that village looking after it. The last heirs to the hall had been killed in World War I, and the devastated family survivors had moved away. It sat empty for decades until it was used by a company that made military uniforms during World War II, was later in the care of the De La Salle Order of Monks. They turned it into a teacher's college, and if you can believe this, these monks put in a bar and a disco as well. But for the past few decades, it's been vacant again and in the care of the local municipal council. Vandals and the weather were leading to its ruination. Hopwood Hall was deteriorating before our very eyes. Dry rot, wet rot, rotten floorboards, the polish taken off all the oak panelling. It looked awful. And most of that was simply down to people sealing the lead off the roof. The lead flashings, really, those are things that bridge over where the tiles finish and the walls begin, or where the top of the roof or the valleys between one apex and another apex. Those are critical because they take the water away from the tiles and the roof generally to the gutters. Once that lead has gone, the rain just pours right through, literally right through the building, through the first floor, down to the ground floor, down to the cellar and it can only cause structural damage, and it did do. In case you hadn't heard, it rains in Britain. Back in L.A., Hopwood Dupree knew only his family's oral tradition that such a place ever existed or that it was still standing, if it ever really did. People like Jeff Wellens and Bob Wall, they knew it was still a thing, or at least hadn't collapsed quite yet. But with the death of Hopwood's father and grandfather, the custodians of stories told by their American branch of the family, a sense began to build inside him, a sense he'd never felt before. Part duty, 
part curiosity, maybe even a sense of incomplete personal identity. And he starts thinking like this around 2013. He was about 40 years old. I think I was poking around looking through genealogy because I was curious, but I wasn't sure that I was going to find anything as exciting or life-changing as Hopwood Hall. So I was just looking. Um, but when I saw this photograph of Hopwood Hall, it it was like a light clicked on. It wasn't just the photograph. It really was a whole lot of emotion and sort of that aha moment that came flooding back to me because my grandfather had talked about it uh, and I never really believed it or I never really took it to heart that it was a true place that when that happened, I think it really hit me. Wow. He was telling the truth and he was trying to pass something on to me that maybe I just wasn't listening or I was brushing off. It really was um, kind of rocked my world there. Just finding something on the internet, it really changed me where I was in an absolute state of disbelief. And I knew it in some ways it was going to, it was going to change some course of my life, but I never, <laughs> I never imagined this much would, would finding that photograph change my life this much as it has. And, and, um, my perception of myself and the world and, and everything that I'm doing now. I mean, it uh, really was a bit of a shock, but uh, a welcome shock and uh, an exciting one, too. Can you even imagine what your grandfather would have done if he had seen that photograph? I think he probably would have felt the same way as I did because he hadn't seen it. He had only been told the stories that had been passed down to him. So he probably would have been just as blown away, but I do feel like he would be here with me today, encouraging me. He would have been the first one to say, let's go see it. You know, he would have been the first one to dig into the history. It is a very nice feeling in looking through all of the discoveries we're finding at the hall to feel like he's with me on this journey. And, and even all the people before him and, um, it's been eye-opening, and I, I don't feel like I'm what I'm doing, I don't feel like it's just for me. I feel like it's everybody, not only who came before me, but also who comes after me. You know, I feel like there's this... Yeah, I, I didn't want to be the Hopwood who happens to be on this earth at this time who has a chance to save the hall to be the one that didn't do it. Ringing in my ears is a sentence you just said, you said, let's go see it. That trip, you still didn't, it was still just kind of a touristy thing when you decided to go see it. I mean, a little bit more than a touristy thing because you got the family connection, but there's still no, no hint of where this is going to lead. Not at all. It was really just curiosity of going to see Hopwood Hall. And we were timing it with a journey that was going to be a farewell to my father. After my father passed away, it was unexpected. Even though he was 75, it just uh, shook our whole family. And it took us a few years before we could really say goodbye and have that healing. And I think one of the things that he had said to me uh, the night before he died was that he had wanted to go to the beaches of Normandy in France. And he died the next day and that had always stuck with me. And so we decided to make a family trip over there to say our farewell to him. And I guess the closure also seemed important to my grandfather who had died bef just before him a few years before my father. And it seemed like, you know, while we're over there, why don't we go see Hopwood Hall as well? And that, I think that seemed exciting to us because we knew how emotional and painful it was going to be to have this farewell to my father. But, ending the trip going to England and seeing something exciting like Hopwood Hall felt like a, a great treat in a way. And I think it was exciting to my mother. You know, I, I was concerned about my mother losing her father and her husband in a short amount of time. And my sisters were as well. And we thought, well, this is, this kind of feels like one of her trips that she used to take us on as, as kids, this one of her historical trips. And it just seemed like it was uh, a great journey to do, but I don't think any of us, expected that by going there, we would be opening a door to something much bigger that would then start to take on a, a significant part of our lives and my life. And then I would end up moving there. I never would have dreamed of that. But when we got there and we saw the state of the hall, 
but also the sense of the history that was there. It just felt so important that someone had to try to preserve this. And it seemed like that person that had to preserve it was me. But just because you've got the perfect name for it, not Steve or Jason or Derek, but Hopwood, that doesn't mean you're automatically entitled to have the keys to the castle. What do you suppose the British stewards of the hall would think about a guy like Hopwood strolling in to size the place up? I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. We're following the unlikely journey of an American film producer turned would-be lord of an English manor. When he shows up over there in England, what impression is he going to make? Here's Zena Howard. She's now head of PR and communications for Hopwood Dupree and the Hopwood Hall Estate. Her first impressions of this guy? Obviously, he had a raging tan and very white teeth because he was from California, but he was absolutely super. And I knew straight away that there was something very down-to-earth, honest, and determined about him. But even before Hopwood crossed the Atlantic, Jeff Wellens, the local historian, already had a hunch, an optimism about things, actually. This guy, Hopwood from America, wants to learn something about the hall. So within 10 seconds, I was on email to him, got in touch, did everything, got it all going, and I think within a fortnight, he was over. Mm. And that's back in yeah. uh, eight years ago, or nearly nine years ago, when he first appeared. I picked him up at the airport, brought him here, dined him, wined him, and very, everything else to make him feel very welcome. And we traipsed up to the hall, and we wandered around the hall, and we saw how wonderful it was. My castle! You can imagine, just seeing this medieval building with Tudor additions to it. It was great to have him over. And I thought, when I first heard about him, he was to be our guardian angel or our knight in shining armour. He was going to save that building. I feel right now like this story is racing ahead of itself, but I suspect everyone involved was caught off guard too. The rain keeps coming, the roof keeps falling, the boy once named Todd, now a man named Hopwood, appears out of nowhere, America that is, actually by way of France, so we can say voila, and he's probably more than a little surprised that these Brits who are emotionally invested in saving the manor house are thrilled to meet him. Movie makers and matchmakers are always hoping for this kind of a storyline. This feeling of welcomeness uh, to a place that had only been told to me about for my grandfather just seemed really unbelievable and how, how fast it all happened. And, it, and the plans came together quickly and um, it just felt like it was meant to be. So here's a weird thing in this story that there's kind of a, a hiatus in the family name because back in World War I, there are two brothers, the last heirs and bearers of the Hopwood name on the English side, and, and they lose their lives in World War I. And then when you show up some 80 years later or more, uh, it's like there's a group of people, practically a welcoming <laughs> committee of people who are, uh, their eyes light up to find out there's still a Hopwood alive. <laughs> well, the, the community is incredibly passionate about Hopwood Hall. And many of their ancestors were involved in the hall for centuries. So whether they helped build it or build sections of it or work there or somehow involved there, um, there is this deep, deep passion for rescuing the hall. And they had looked before, they had reached out to try to find if there was another Hopwood out there somewhere, but they had not been able to find anybody. And I guess in a way, it's like we were both looking for each other. Jeff felt that unless he could find somebody with a family connection, that it would be almost impossible to save it. The time was ticking. The hall was decaying. Water was pouring in. Vines were growing in through the windows. Animals were getting in there. Um, they knew that if they didn't do something quickly, that it probably would be lost forever. Meanwhile, I'm on the other side of the Atlantic searching for something else, bigger and I guess a meaning in life in a way. And I think it's that perfect storm of us both searching for an answer that brought us together. A couple of things here that are crossing my mind. And one is that 
you just say something was happening on one side of the Atlantic, something was happening on the other side. That seems kind of coincidental, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does. And I have to say this entire process has always felt that way. It Even things that I'm doing today feel coincidental. It's hard to explain it. It feels like in a way it's just working and it feels like it's a path that's almost leading itself that this is how it's supposed to go. So in a way I feel very much like an observer as I'm just going through what I feel I need to do, but it also feels like that without that sort of feeling it, it, it might not be happening. I, it's hard to explain, but I definitely feel like I'm in the right place doing what, what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. But it also kind of coincided, this whole transition of you changing your, your whole raison d'etre. I mean, it's like, I don't know even how to say this, and clearly it's not easy for you to say it either, but it's like this happened at a time when maybe your career was going to grind to a halt because you were losing interest? It happened at a time in my life where I was searching for something more. And I think so many of us go through this, you know, whether it's a, a shift in a career, a change in a relationship, uh, death of a family member. I had had a several of those things all happening at once. And it was making me second guess what I'm doing in Los Angeles, working in the entertainment business. I had lost sort of my way, I think, in terms of where I started out when I was 18 and packed my bags for the bright lights of Hollywood and I was you know, in my 40s now. I was, my life was changing. It just was a feeling of searching for something else. And I think a lot of people have that, especially in this day and age where th so many things are uncertain. And for some reason, Hopwood Hall grounded me and gave me this sense of certainty, I guess because it's been there for 600 years and it was a touchstone for me, something I could you know, look back and see initials carved in the wall from, you know, 1689, you know, and, and, and remnants and hints and evidence of the people who came before me being there. And I think that really rooted me in some sort of place that I needed to be and that I needed to find just for my own path in life. Take us now to the hall itself and that first tour that you had. And in some ways, as exciting as that was, it also was a kick in the gut just because of its condition. It was daunting and eye-opening and very different from America because we have less buildings of that age. You know, we don't have the sort of history that England and Europe have where there's so many different buildings that are centuries old that they, in a way it's very challenging for them to try to keep all of these different buildings up. And so I couldn't believe it, nor could my family when we went there and saw this home that dates back to the 1400s and perhaps even earlier uh, in a state of being vandalized and um, thieves breaking in and uh, people, you know, kids not having any knowledge of what they're destroying, breaking in and smashing items. Um, it was a real eye opener. And, and like you say, it was a kick in the gut because we felt like, Oh my gosh, there are priceless artifacts from history that are just being destroyed here. And if we don't do something, it's going to be too late. And you could see the passion in the local community. They didn't know what to do. Even the local council, I mean, nobody wanted the hall to fall into this position. But at some point after vandals broke in and caused so much damage, you know, the price tag to repair it was in the millions and millions of pounds. And I think they just didn't know what to do or how to do it. Lest anyone should misconstrue, Hopwood is a Hollywood producer. He's not your builder, contractor, carpenter, fixer-upper type, you know, the type that never has to write loosey-goosey, righty-tighty on their hand to remember which way. He doesn't fit the bill. But he saw some people in a fix at a mansion with... Broken windows, you know, 800 broken windows or something like that. It's, it's a huge liability, and it's not really in my experience of anything I had done, certainly not on that scale. 
And precisely what was Hopwood's previous experience? I mean, is he any good with power tools? Bob Wall is disarmingly frank on the matter. Yeah, no, it's like a fish on a bicycle at times. Um, you know, it just doesn't work. I think one of the funniest ones was he, he had a couple of, uh, still photograph taken, and I'd given him a pair of gloves, and he'd got the gloves on the wrong hands. <laughs> and, he, and I nearly wet myself when I saw it because of laughter. Draw your own conclusions. But what Hopwood can do well, he does with uncanny optimism. He's the kind of guy you might ask to build Rome in a day. Here's what he did. He negotiated an agreement with the municipal council. Here's the bargain. For him, it was to prove that he has what it takes to oversee personally the restoration of a hall such as this. And in return, the council would help him find grant money to keep progress rolling along on the restoration. And after a five-year trial period, the council would then transfer the property to him. Signing that agreement was incredibly scary because I knew that signing it meant that I would have to give up my entire life in the U.S. and that I would be over there for the majority of the time and that I would be responsible for it. And that that really was scary, especially in a country where if you don't protect the heritage assets, you can, it can be punishable by fines and prison and all sorts of things. So people take it very seriously over there. And I knew I was going to take it seriously. This wasn't something I was just going to jump into and say I was going to do, but not really do it. I knew I couldn't phone this in or zoom this in. I knew that I was going to have to be there and I was going to have to use everything, every skill I'd ever learned and learn some more to make this happen. It really was, again, the community, I think, that kept me going because I realized if I didn't do that, it felt like it was the end of the, the path for the hall. Remember the gloves? Well, it turns out British culture wasn't a particularly good fit for him either. So much to learn. But with that same self-effacing humor he put on display in his documentary Rhino Skin, he learned to bumble his way through, collecting comic vignettes all along the way for his eventual book, Downton Shabby, and for a comedy tour. Did I tell you he does stand up? A local counselor rang me to say, uh, he said, uh, yes, Hopwood, I need to speak with you about signing the papers to obtain custody uh, of your ancestor's hall. Could you meet me on Saturday? I'm having surgery. I'm sorry, you're, you're having surgery? <laughs> so I had no idea that in England, the term surgery can mean a period of time when a person would meet with a counselor or an MP to hear their advice. Because in America, surgery only means an operation. So I'm like, um, did you want me to meet you before? <laughs> or maybe after your surgery? He goes, no, no, I, I'm busy before and after. So you, you want me to come meet you during your surgery to talk to you about Hopwood Hall? He says, yes, yes, please. I say, will you be conscious? <laughs> of course I'll be conscious. I'll be wide awake and taking notes. So I, I finally say, okay, what hospital? He's like, He's like, hospital? No, no, we do it at the library. A library? <laughs> I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Hopwood Dupree signed away his life as a Hollywood producer to save his family's 600-year-old ancestral English manor hall. He's only a few years into the process, but he looks forward to a day when the building will reopen for weddings, retreats, and will also be something of... A living museum where the community can come and visit and experience what life was like way back when. That's the vision for what it will become, but the task at hand is dealing with decades of disuse and abuse. That the place got shabby is a huge understatement. The council had erected a big 13 or 14 foot high security fence with razor spikes at the top. And that really didn't detour a lot of the vandals. They still would climb it and get over it. And in one unfortunate case, uh, one of the vandals slipped and cut himself very severely. I followed the drops of blood all the way around from the north side, all the way around, 
seen where they'd broken in through a window, went to the inside of the building where I could get, followed the blood upstairs, and he'd actually written, help me, on one of the walls in his blood, which was handy for DNA. And then, you know, you could see where he'd walked, you could see where he'd stopped because he was, he was losing that much blood. And then I'd, I think I'd rang or emailed Hotwood and kind of told him what had happened. He said, right, I'm on my way, I'm on my way. So Hotwood came and he was, he was shocked, to say the least. And we followed the blood round and it looked as if he, the person had come unconscious and he'd been dragged for a while. And that was it. And in the process, he managed to smash about 200 windows. That's caretaker Bob Wall on a call he got from the hall's security guard who alerted him one night to vandals in the building. Using DNA, police identified the culprit who was found unconscious not far away. But the damage was done, and unfortunately it wasn't an isolated incident. In his memoir, Downton Shabby, Hopwood shares how it feels to be witness to this kind of mayhem. It made me sick to think of a proud 15th century woodworker putting the final touches on his prized angel, only to know that 600 years later, some hoodlum would snap it off as if it were a dead branch on a tree. You know that little angel I'm talking about that you wrote about? It's in a room called the Oak Parlor, and it's this beautiful room that was built in the 1400s, and there's still the original beams in the walls and hand-carved cherubs and angels and pineapples and tulips all throughout the room from floor to ceiling. Just absolutely stunning. And I'd never seen woodwork like that and never seen this sort of craftsmanship close up. And there was this beautiful angel that was probably... 18 inches high but carved into the wall and uh, someone had just grabbed it and snapped it off at the ankles so it was shocking Hopwood Dupree hasn't had to go it alone he's found people in the know dependable allies to consult with and even people who can commiserate about the overwhelming emotional and financial responsibility for historic architecture. The whole adventure has put him in league with an echelon of society he probably never thought he'd rub elbows with. Becoming friends with many of these historic homeowners was really a lucky twist of fate. It made me realize it was possible. While the Hopwoods were killed in World War One, and the family sort of faded away after 500 years of living at Hopwood Hall. Many of these families didn't. They've still been there for hundreds and hundreds of years, and the, it's passed down through the generations, and those families still continue to own and operate these uh, large estates. So I ended up being asked to join a group called Historic Houses, which represents many of these privately owned homes. And I really didn't know what to expect, but what I found was an incredibly welcoming group of people that was almost like a support group. Because you might think, oh, if you inherited this huge house, oh, what a blessing and how lucky someone is. But if you look at it from the other way, it's in a lot of ways, it's almost like someone handing you the keys to a museum and saying, this is yours. You need to take responsibility for it. You need to protect everything and keep it dusted. Nothing can happen to it. And you also can't sell it. You can't benefit from it. So you're just the custodian to take care of it, to pass it on to the next generation. It's a bit daunting. They don't necessarily have the freedom we have in America and, you know, how you could just wake up and decide you're going to move to Los Angeles and pursue movies and do TV. You know, you can make those decisions, whereas if you're born into an estate like this, somebody has to take care of it, because if you don't, it's going to fall into disrepair and you'd be letting down centuries worth of history. Tradition offers a roll call of distinguished guests who have stayed at Hopwood Hall over the centuries, including some famous artists and at least one folk hero slash terrorist, a notorious rebel against the crown. Guy Fawkes, who is uh, very famous in the UK, maybe not so much in America, but he is was behind uh, the potential um, Houses of Parliament uh, coup back in the 1600s. He had visited Hopwood Hall looking for support. That, to people in England, is, you know, 
something that's kind of very exciting for them because that's a, a, a an important historical time. Uh, but there was also Chopin is said to have visited Hopwood Hall when he was on his North England uh, Manchester tour and uh, thought to have played piano in the banquet room at Hopwood Hall. People would kind of go and spend a week, a month at a time at these houses because so many of these houses were in a way almost like hotels or resorts. You know, they had everything in them. You didn't need anything else from the food and drink to uh, like a hotel room in a way that you would go for the summer and stay at someone's house. So people would travel from home to home and I guess sort of be on the circuit. And they always liked to entertain artists and people in culture that would come in and then also other people that would be coming looking for business proposals. Lord Byron is uh, well documented that he had visited there and was at the time putting his final touches on his poem called Child Harold's Pilgrimage which ended up uh, being his most successful poem and really skyrocketing his career, taking him from relative obscurity to being a household name in the poetry world. And he talks about the pathless woods in his poem, and it's thought that the pathless woods are the Hopwood Woods that are on the original estate of the hall. There is a pleasure in the pathless woods. There is a rapture on the lonely shore. There is society where none intrudes by the deep sea and music in its roar. I love not man the less, but nature more. From these are interviews in which I steal from all I may be. Byron slept here. The hall can definitely boast, although he stayed only a couple of weeks and the actual Lord Byron's bed was sold off after the heirs died. But... There is still a surprising secret room called a priest's hole with an unusual relic inside it. The ancestral Hopwoods were Catholic, you see, which was a thorny situation after Henry VIII had his little tiff with the Pope. We're constantly finding new discoveries. You know, y- you never know what you're on a daily basis what you're going to find, especially as we're getting more and more into the renovation of it. In the case of this priest hole, we were uh, removing a decorative ceiling, which was uh, architecturally significant ceiling that was being damaged from water that was leaking in. So before it was too late, uh, Bob, who is the caretaker of the hall, and I needed to remove this plaster work. And when we were doing that, a small hole opened up and we realized there was something above the ceiling. There was a space. So we cleared that out and got some lights up there and we found up there an old wood box hidden in this brick room. I mean, it was just, it was like something out of a book or you know, I couldn't believe it. And this turned out to be what we think is a priest hole. And that was um, a tabernacle that had been hidden in there, uh, which would have been during the time of religious persecution. The tabernacle is a wood box and it's got almost ecclesiastical kind of carvings in it. It's, you know, almost looks like arch church windows carved into the side of it. There was some gilding on it on the edges, quite faded. Now it was covered in dust and almost like a mold because it had been sitting there for so long and kind of has these sort of castellations carved into the edge of it. And this is what have been where they would have kept the chalice and it would have been part of the religious uh, ceremonies. But if somebody saw that and was looking for priests and and saw that in the house, it probably would have cost them their lives or would have caused more of a search throughout the house. Now, you can imagine in a huge home like this, there were many, many places to hide. And when they would search a house, they would be quite thorough. And the Hopwoods, who were Catholic at the time, um, had hidden these artifacts because they feared for their lives. And that priest probably hid in these priest holes. The priest himself hiding there with various items. In the book, I've included a diagram of one, which we believe is uh, very similar to what would have been at Hopwood Hall, which almost looks like a cupboard that you would put dishes and plates in. But the back of it, pushes open and swings back into a room. That's what we think we found is that that 
as someone was approaching the house, they would have quickly got everybody or anything that would have tipped off that there were priests in the house, such as a tabernacle, and hidden it uh, behind the wall. Those decaying ceilings you've heard about, piecing them back together with their plaster moldings is like reconstructing a massive jigsaw puzzle with thousands of pieces. On top of that, anyone who comes into the hall has got to be kept safe. With his impish sort of humor, Bob Wall has been known to play a mind game or two with some of the visitors he's had to chaperone through, like contractors or officials or even Hopwood Dupree on the day he first arrived. Uh, You say a few rules before we go in. Don't go running off and only walk where I tell you to. If you don't listen to me, you may fall through the floor and die. If that does happen and you're wearing a watch, please hold up your arm when you're falling so when you land, I can easily collect your watch to sell it later. Yeah, no, sell it and buy a few drinks to remember you buy. I was there with the council who was showing potential contractors, you know, who were going to bid for the works. And I said to them, only stand on the new boards. If you stand on the old board, you'll end up downstairs. And he said, all right. And then someone said, oh, can I come up? I said, yeah, just hang on a sec. And this bloke walks onto the floor. I physically had to grab him by his rucksack because one foot had gone through the floor. And I physically had to pull him back to stop him from falling through the floor. And the bloke from the council said, some people never listen. <laughs> I said, you're very fortunate because directly underneath is, is the ladies' toilets. And I said, I'm a lot of things. But I, do, I generally don't go into the ladies' toilets. <laughs> Uh, and, he, and he looked at me, and he was white. And I just said, remember the thing I said about only stand on new boards? He said, I forgot. He said, you only forget once in this game. Bob is like a well-roasted potato, tender in the middle with a crackling, crusty exterior. And for any sport he might make of occasional ineptness, he's also deeply appreciative that Hopwood Dupree is devoted to restoring the hall. So many good-hearted people in this story rallying to a good cause, from Bob to Jeff Wellens to members of the organization Historic Houses, the locals in the Manchester area, goodwill just all the way around. And as you would expect nowadays, social media has been very valuable. There's a scene from Hopwood's YouTube channel where artwork is returned that had gone missing from the hall for many years. It's a fun story. A Facebook message comes practically out of the blue to Hopwood from a woman named Tracy. She and her husband Jim have in their possession some original carved panels from the hall. Jim's father had been a historian at the hall back in the 1960s, and because of the deterioration of the place, I think it is just as well that these carvings from the 1500s had gone on holiday for a few decades, just a few decades. Jim and Tracy rendezvous with Hopwood in a supermarket parking lot, and here's a clip where Hopwood is about to give those panels a ride back home. This is like carrying a little baby. Not sure what to do. I was going to go to Tesco and do some shopping after this, but I don't think that's going to happen. We're so lucky Jim and Tracy saved these and had these all these years. So I think I'm going to call an Uber and go home. This is like 500 years old. It's older than America. It's older than the Liberty Bell. And yet, it's wrapped in my bath towel. All right, I'm putting it into the Uber. See you later. We just got our trunk full of stuff older than America. The moment of reckoning, this is one of the panels. We're going to take it into the hall and start looking for where it goes. Let's go. You can see in the hall, various panels are missing. We're not sure if vandals stole them or destroyed them. Some stuff might have just fallen behind the walls. If you look, you can see it's pretty dramatic. I'm not sure what wood this is, but probably oak or mahogany. This is a guard who's about to chop off the head or decapitate this man who's down on his knees praying. And then you have this angel that's swooping in from the clouds and it's grabbing the blade and stopping the guard from chopping off the man's head. So it's a pretty morbid scene. Probably the reason Jim and Tracy don't want to hang in their dining room. Wow, that's a really good match in terms of color and design. That's really close. I'm now thinking we might have found it. Based on this door and the carvings on this door, in my expert opinion, This is the room. So we just need to confirm that with an expert. And Team Hopwood may just have another member we ought to talk about here. It's long been rumored that the hall is haunted. So I asked historian Jeff Wellens and communications director Zena Howard just how far-fetched they think this might be. I don't think it is, and I'll tell you something quite extraordinary. When Hopwood's family came over, one of his sisters uh, took a photograph looking towards the hall. 
and it was on her iPhone. And then we noticed that there was a shape of a person's face, and I saw this on the picture, and it absolutely looked like Lady Fanny Hotwood with the bonnet, because there's beautiful pictures of her on the front lawn, you know, with her dogs and, and the carriage and everything else, and she had this bonnet. And honestly, I mean, I can be pretty sceptical, but I looked at this photograph and I thought, well, <laughs> it's basically a face hanging in the, the front of the house. And um, she was an incredible lady, uh, Lady Susan Fanny Hopwood. She was called Fanny as a, as a nickname because she was one of the first environmentalists and she was really anti the cotton mills that were polluting. And she used to pay for her own smoke detectors, which were these people who she would send out to look at what the, the cotton mills were doing. And she had a massive event, which was anti-pollution. And there were thousands of people, weren't there, Jeff, that came on the lawns and, and, and did a protest. So yes. quite some incredible people in his family. So to be honest with you, I feel there's some serious characters there. <laughs> so it's a possibility. She is somebody who might be in favor of what the current temperature is in the community to save the hall. Absolutely. Yeah. She'll, she'll be there in spirit. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now, to be honest, nobody would claim that the restoration project is anywhere near complete. And with a chunk of material history like this, maintenance is going to be pricey going forward, not just for another 5 or 10 or 20 years, but in perpetuity. So what big milestone can we cheer about now? The most historically significant parts have all been uh, shored up, structurally sound and saved. And um, that's huge because I guess from there, you know that the building's going to exist uh, for more generations. And I guess when I first got involved, I was told it was five to 10 years max before the building would be a pile of rubble. So the fact now, even if we didn't do anything more, it would outlive me. At last word, the plan is to open a few rooms for tours just in time for the book launch for Hopwood's memoir, Downton Shabby. Listen up, anybody expecting to be in Manchester area from, oh, about mid-June? Our website offers a link to registration information, and if you're the hands-on sort, they're going to be offering workshops on making lead windows and molds for ceiling tiles. Your own handiwork may one day grace the hall where original parts have been lost or damaged. Our best wishes to Team Hopwood. Thanks to Hopwood Dupree for sharing his story this hour, and thanks to caretaker Bob Wall, historian Jeff Wellens, and Zena Howard, head of PR and communications, for Hopwood Dupree and Hopwood Hall Estate. Kyle Remond was our Lord Byron, and this episode of Constant Wonder was produced by Tenery Taylor and Jenea Tanner with help from Parker Schmidt and the sound design team at BYU Broadcasting. If you love what you hear from us, please leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts, and that helps other people find our show. I'm Marcus Smith. Thanks for listening. Listening.